It's not, it's not so much that we are dogmatic about what we do, but that we think that the Fortepiano is closer to our understanding. It's more important to have a historical mind than a historical instrument. That says it all, actually. Welcome to Taco Talk, a podcast series that spins tunes and tales with members of the American Classical Orchestra and beyond. Hosted by Thomas Crawford, Artistic Director of the ACO, each episode takes a unique and intriguing glimpse into the world surrounding historic performance. Welcome to Taco Talk. I'm Tom Crawford, the Artistic Director of the American Classical Orchestra. Today, we have the pleasure of two guests calling from the Netherlands. They are Petra Somlai and Bart van Oort. Welcome. Hello, Hello. Tom. Nice to see Hello. you. <laughs> nice to see you. I actually first heard your name through Malcolm Bilson, the forte pianist in Ithaca in Cornell. He had recorded the all the Mozart concerti with John Elliott Gardner for Deutsche Grammophon, no less. He mentioned to me that there were seven concerti that Deutsche Grammophon did not want to do. I was shocked to hear that. And I said, how do you do the complete concerti without doing number one through four, you know? And uh, he said, well, they just thought they were not significant enough or something like that. He then recorded them with us. And in fact, a representative from Deutsche Grammophon came and heard the recordings. Malcolm was trying to get them to pick us up and to complete the cycle and so forth. But he spoke so highly of you. And so it was, as so many things in music, it was through a colleague that I first met you. Well, that's that's fantastic to hear. Um, It just shows how important Malcolm has been for the lives and careers of so many of his uh, colleagues and students. Uh, Malcolm has been the godfather of our uh, fortepiano world, I should say. As for the early pieces, um, one thing that Malcolm then may not have mentioned to you is that in that time, right when he was finishing his concerti and I was his student, I wrote a paper on Mozart. And in that paper, I made a rather scathing remark about him not recording those seven concertos. And he was kind of baffled by it. And I think that set him to thinking. So it may have all come together at the same time. Oh, then I owe you a debt of gratitude. Well, in the end, I wrote the program notes for that CD. Yes, I remember. In comes Petra, your wife, who's an equally gifted forte pianist. I know that Petra has the distinction of being I guess you could say a double whammy, we call it here, of being hit with the the pandemic. You were to play a Beethoven concerto with us last May, which was two months into the pandemic. We couldn't have you come, of course, and we had canceled the whole thing. But who would have imagined that a whole year later, we still wouldn't be able to play the concerto with you during Beethoven's 250th year? Yeah, I think... The the whole world is shaken by this, and actually, 21 is also very unsure concerning concerts and festivals. So we are just really waiting to start up and actually live again and play concerts and give master classes and meet people. So, uh, tell us how you have been able to survive even during this past year. The situation in Holland and in Europe at large is is a little different from the United States in that we have a lot of state-funded art. And so besides not being able to play and have an income for our performance, 
uh, we are also solving the problem of the concert organizations when we actually play and they get rid of their state money. I mean, they have to spend that money on performances. So indeed, between the two waves uh, in the fall, there was a pretty much a flare-up of activities. And um, so there were performances. Um, we made it shorter performances and then we would play twice in an evening so that we had a very small crowd but then twice that crowd we managed to save half the season that way uh, right now it's all completely locked down and uh, we we don't know how long it's going to be but petra and i we are both uh, teachers um, in the early music department of the royal conservatory at the hague and uh, that is the basis of our musical life right now Normally it is a side activity, but now it's the main activity. We enjoy it immensely. We have a fabulous class with great talents, and um, we spend a little bit more than uh, than normal with them, so to say. All online, unfortunately. You do your individual lessons online, as well as group lessons, research classes, uh, historical performance classes, etc. And class concerts as well. They all happen online, and I would just add to what you said that the dimension of, of things, of concerts and performances and also teaching changed. And we are sometimes wondering if it's for the worse or for the better. It was also a kind of eye-opener to the world and for the organizations, how it can be also done. Of course, it's not as nice as having a packed concert hall. Well, speaking of uh, video products, Petra, you made a sensational video of the Moonlight Sonata for us. That video is in our portfolio now and is truly gorgeous, was made in a historic church, your own church, yes? That's right. Yeah. Tell us, you went to all the trouble to take your forte piano there? And... It's not so far away, actually. <laughs> it was more about the timing because churches also have now the online uh, version of uh, celebrations every week. But this was a wonderful experience with a very good acoustic and with a wonderful location. It was only inspiring, I have to yeah, say. The, the yeah. building itself is about 250 years old. And interestingly enough, we had been recording there for 20 years already. And then yeah. by a fluke, really, we landed in a Valley Border House just around the corner from that same church. We could have actually wheeled the piano on a dolly there without no even kidding. taking a van, yes. Uh-huh. Oh, it's marvelous to think of how much music has gone by and in those walls over the couple of centuries, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's back up for a minute and uh, talk about the Forte Piano because it's fun for me that we started this conversation with the presumption that everyone knows about Forte Piano. In the piano world, not so many pianists have uh, taken the interest, obviously, that you have taken in this wonderful instrument. My own personal professional view that among the instruments of the orchestra, the instruments of the classical world, um, that the forte piano got short shrift, that it, it uh, lagged behind. You know, every university would have a, uh, a, a department with Baroque violin teaching. Um, there are flute players all over the world who have now had makers and beautiful instruments and studies and treatises. The forte piano, it just seemed to me, uh, certainly at Juilliard here in New York City, 
uh, was um, left behind, I guess you could say. Uh, so talk to me about how you were first attracted to it and why. It's interesting that you mentioned Juliet. I've been teaching classes in Juliet um, several times. And uh, the first time I did it, it was kind of a secret. If the students, actually one of the students said to me, please don't mention my name anywhere because if my teacher finds <laughs> out that I was in your class, I'll get kicked out of school. That's perfect. I love that. I think it is much better now, now that there's a full-fledged early music department. But you're right, it is not everywhere that those instruments are to be found. It's also because they are pretty nasty machines when they are old and need to be restored. Then they need still a lot of maintenance, and most schools don't have that kind of know-how. Newly built instruments, however, are these days to be found on, I would call, Steinway quality. Yes. Dozens of fabulous builders in the world on every continent, also in the United States. And um, I think that at this point, there's for no school anymore an excuse not to have one of them. And we see a a great um, wave of change in this. Yeah. You do? Yeah. Also in our school, uh, all modern pianists have to spend now one year in their curriculum to get no historical keyboard instruments and also about the repertory. I'm doing actually that class and I enjoy it so much because a real intelligent musician, also modern pianists, are interested up to a certain point. They don't have to become specialists. Bart, you began life as a modern pianist. Uh, Did you also, Petra? Yeah. Okay. So speak about it aesthetically. What attracted you to the forte piano? I can say the simple way is that Mozart and Haydn didn't mean a lot to me on the modern piano. It seems like either too simple or too complicated. Those Alberti basses, the incessant articulation stuff, and nothing seems to really work. It didn't catch on with me. And then I went to the fortepiano and suddenly it all made sense. And this is actually a story I hear from many different players. Uh, I'm just reading the new book that David Breitman brought out about what modern pianists can learn from fortepianists from the fortepiano. And I couldn't agree more that if we understand what the composers meant, that means that we have to interpret what they wrote, then we can take that knowledge and that interpretation, that musical sensation to the modern piano and make it work. But not if we come from Rachmaninoff and Stravinsky and Dvorak and Bartok and try to make Mozart work on those well, premises, yeah, level of understanding, exactly. And so um, for us in that context, in the uh, classes that we teach, also in other conservatories, um, we usually work with modern piano classes. We are not trying to convert them into thinking that Mozart on the Steinway doesn't work. It's nonsense. Of course it works. But there are many things about Mozart that one can't find out while working on a Steinway. And if you find them out once, you understand what the point is and what is behind the notation, then you can successfully bring that to a Steinway, although it will never be quite the same. And that's okay. It's not, it's not so much that we are dogmatic about what we do, but that we think that the fortepiano is closer to uh, well, our understanding of that style. There is an important quote to this, which says that it's more important to have a historical mind than a historical instrument. That says it all, actually. Yeah. Summary. That's, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And the, particularly, you mentioned the Alberti bass, so particularly the left hand. 
was a motivation to... Interestingly enough, there was not just one Alberti base. There are dozens of types of Alberti bases, and they all have different characters and reasons to be. While on the modern piano, you simply try to push them away or else they get too loud. <laughs> on the forte piano, you can use them to their full potential and create a sensation with them. Like a very good example in Petra's, um, in Petra's Moonlight a video, you find that the, the second theme of the last movement has a fiery, very sensational left-hand Alberti bass, twice as fast as normal, with a melody that doesn't really go so fast. No. Of course, the sensational left-hand fires up, uh, gives, a, gives a justification for the character of the right hand. While on the modern piano, you can, and therefore you will often hear, that that melody is played like a lyrical, beautiful Schubert-like melody, while the left hand is pushed away into some harmonic blur. As a result, the piece changes character, I would say, fatally. Something that you cannot even try on the Steinway simply because your left hand will really be too loud, but you can at least get that agitated character out, also on the Steinway. podcast in just a moment. I'm David Larkin, Executive Director of the American Classical Orchestra. Consider helping us continue to spin tunes and tales with other members of the ACO and beyond. Make a donation in honor of Taco Talk. Look for the donate or the support ACO button on our podcast page, any email we have sent you, and on our website. Our musicians, thank you for it. And thank you for listening. I want to ask you about uh, the festivals. I mean, festivals in the United States are just in full lockdown. I mean, they've had to be abandoned. But you've referred to festivals here in this podcast and in some correspondence. Um, Do you feel that they're effective by Zoom? I mean, I can see your personal lessons you know, can be fine. But how can you have a festival? You can't, I think. Although we were lucky in September, still during the lockdown, uh, there was the famous Utrecht uh, Early Music Festival taking place, actually, in Utrecht, with audience of like five people. They had to have certain uh, uh, distance, and the locations, of course, were not extremely big. So next to the live performances, which were limited in this sense, we also got an, an stream, uh, streaming possibility. And uh, sometimes I felt that it was reaching much more many people than, than in the usual way. So it had a downside because you play, of course, 25 people is wonderful to have in a lockdown in an audience, but you still miss the kind of contact with the audience for communicating what you're doing. It is poor in that sense, but it is rich in another sense that it is um, much more widespread now, in a way. So yes, you can have a festival. It's just not the same thing. People, Some people cannot live without concerts and without going to the museum and without these things, you know. And it is also very important. It, it, it belongs to mental health. Absolutely.
Yeah, and besides, um, I think that if you look at the number of people who looked at the streams afterwards, uh, that was usually more than we would have in, yeah. in, in yeah. the concert hall. So that, that was a big advantage, although often those streams were for free. And of course, if you look at a model to make the festival um, possible financially, then this, uh, this free streaming is probably not the best thing to do. Uh, you have upcoming recordings, both of you. So tell me about those. I'm going to record a Dusak CD. And we had a project of recording all the Dusak uh, keyboard sonatas with um, nine uh, performer, and uh, I'm one of them. And so that has to be still made on a wonderful original uh, Clementi for the piano, possessed by Chris Miner. So I will have to go to Belgium for that, which is uh-huh. very yeah, difficult, difficult in the lockdown. But. And then uh, I have another CD recording with a horn player, a historical horn player, uh, Recording Beethoven and uh, and colleagues, um, so that's a wonderful project. And um, some Hungarian music, written also around uh, Beethoven and a bit after Beethoven's life. You mentioned CD. I mean, will they be produced physically? Yeah, there'll be there'll be a, a plastic object called a compact disc. Yes. <laughs> we actually make the physical CDs. We don't sell them anymore. We actually give them away. Um, and that we do in the hope of uh, attracting some interest uh, for yeah. it. But you're right that uh, at, at concerts these days, CDs practically don't sell anymore. We get a lot of people who say, no, no, I'm getting it online. And then online, of course, nobody yeah. makes any money of it. And your, pro- your projects, Bart, I think you're recording something. Yeah, yeah, I have uh, also done the Dusek, of course. Uh, Petra and I did that project together, invited colleagues, and um, made 10 CDs of the complete works of uh, for piano solo of Dusek. The complete sonatas, I should say, not the other work. Yeah, and so uh, we were also amazed by recording the Dusek sonatas because they are such a unique style, but you as a pianist don't come across too with the normal kind of repertory that is anyway big and given. We know for a fact that, that Beethoven was very much interested in these works. He owned them all in first edition, the, one, the ones that he could get. And um, when you know that Dussek was called by his contemporaries a romantic, by the way, also Mozart did, but Dussek much more had a real claim to being romantic, um, you can understand that Beethoven... Um, was taken by this music because Beethoven was transcending classical style as well. Yeah, both of them are innovators, but on a very um, different language, so to speak. And so that's that's just done. And what I'm working on now is two CDs with Russian nocturnes, which is going to mean uh, 
volume six and seven of an ongoing project called The Nocturne in the 19th Century, which, of course, started with John Field and two CDs with the complete Chopin, some contemporaries, and recently um, a CD with only French nocturnes. And that is Bart's best CD. <laughs> well, that's the one that, that is best sold really? for sure. Fantastic. Yeah. So that project is extremely alive and interesting. I have a, a whole bookshelf full of nocturnes from all countries in the world. It has an unbelievable amount written, stellar quality of it. Now, besides that, I, with my group, I just recorded the uh, Beethoven Piano Quartets, and they are extraordinarily beautiful pieces. They're fantastic classical pieces. And not to be missed, I would say, for anyone who wants to do a complete Beethoven. for this and we look forward to rescheduling our time with you unfortunately mr beethoven will have turned at least 251 by the time that we can celebrate we'll try to make something out of his 251st year yeah although there is some uh, we would like to give some credibility to the claim that he was actually not born in right. 1770 but in 1771 who knows <laughs> but if it is 71, then we are fully, fully into the Beethoven year right now. Thank you again. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. We look forward to seeing you live. Likewise. I'm producer Mark Zaki, and you've been listening to Taco Talk. If you're interested in historical music performance and music in general, I encourage you to subscribe so that you can hear all of the other interesting episodes that we have coming up. To learn more about the American Classical Orchestra, please visit us on the web at aconyc.org. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.